Good morning, church. Welcome, everybody, joining us online as well. If you're here for the first time, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, I would really appreciate the opportunity to do so. Right after the service, I'll be right down here in the front if you've got a spare minute or two. And I want to speak to the men just for a second. Um, guys, we have our men's gathering coming up this Thursday at 7 p.m. here at the church. You know, one of the new ministries that we're launching this year is our ministry to men. We've been talking about it for the last couple of months. We've been asking you to peg the date in April for our men's retreat. But this Thursday, you're going to hear more about men's ministry and how we're going to move forward and connecting uh, with one another. So I strongly encourage you to be here uh, for that. Now, if you got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 6. Actually, we're in Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6 over the last several months. We've been saying that, uh, you know, we've been opening up this ancient text, and we've been discovering how remarkable it is because it applies so well to our modern times. And so last week we were introduced to these two brothers, infamous. It was the story, the account, the narrative of Cain and Abel. Their relationship was cut short because one actually murders the other without, without raising your hand, without nodding your head, without giving any indication at all. Anybody here have any family dysfunction? The laughter, yeah, 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 right, right. Uh, nothing new. Family dysfunction began with the original family. Adam and Eve have two sons. Immediately, there is family dysfunction. It didn't necessarily have to go this way, though, because God actually intervenes in a very gracious and divine way. It's as if he counsels Cain. He says, Cain, let me tell you what's going on inside of you right now. Those emotions, jealousy and anger, they want to own you. And once they own you, it's going to be very bad for you. Don't open up that door. If you do, you're going to be set on a trajectory you're not fully aware of, but believe me, you don't want to land there. So God graciously intervenes and attempts to help him. You can pull back. You can make this right. Cain is defiant, rises up, murders Abel. Because God is just, he can't turn a blind eye to the wrongs that are done. There are consequences. Part of that consequence to Cain is that he's banished. He will become a wanderer. So in the last half of Genesis chapter 4, that's exactly what we see. Cain is a nomad. He settles in, has a family, and what we learn is that his descendants are just as evil and defiant and rebellious as he is. In fact, he has a great, great, great grandson. This guy is so gnarly. He's so wicked. He's so evil that he actually brags about it. This is what he says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. His name is Lamech. He says, I have killed a man because he wounded me. I've killed a young man simply because he struck me. So if Cain, my great, great, great grandfather, who's the OG of murderers, right? If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech says, then mine will be 77. In other words, I'm 10 times as evil as my patriarch grandfather. By the way, Lamech is also the guy that propagates polygamy. So this guy is just, you know, he's just doing his own thing apart from God. So 
What's interesting and what's, what's, what's happening in this text, you know, we need to pause here and ask this question. If you know me, you know I like to ask a lot of questions because questions bring clarity. And so at this point, I ask, why is this account here? And by the way, I'm using the word account instead of the word story. And I realized this a couple of weeks ago. It's important to emphasize that these are not fictional stories. Sometimes when we hear the word story in our time, it may be true, it may not be true. The style, the narrative with which Genesis is written is not fiction. It's historical narrative. So these are real events. If they wanted to present it as a fairy tale or a myth, it would take on a different form of writing. But this form is narrative. It's historical narrative, okay? Why is this here? Well, because, look, God is about to do something. Uh, and many people struggle with what God is about to do because God's about to push the reset button. And the question has to be asked, why? Why would he do that? Because the reality is things are going to get really violent. And that's, uh, you know, people struggle with that. And if you don't have a good answer, if you don't have an answer that comes from the Bible, then, you know, that's going to keep you up at night. So maybe you've wrestled with that a little bit. But what happens is in Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6 is that there's this picture that's being painted. And the picture is really dark. It describes the origin of pre-flood society as it is on this fast downward spiral. So... Lamech comes on the scene. What we learn is that his descendants continue to be just, they're just, they're really bad people. So you have this line of Cain that's just really, really wicked. God notices it. Uh, At the same time, we understand that there's this other line that comes. uh, And that's what we we get in Genesis chapter 5. So um, when we started the series, I spent quite a bit of time walking through the specific genealogies. And maybe you studied the book of Genesis and nobody's really, really done that with you, right? Because a lot of people get to the genealogy, like this person beget this person beget that, and you're like, okay, next, and they skip right over it. But my point was, those genealogies are ultra important in understanding what I've been saying every week. Genesis points forward to who? I need you to answer a little bit loud. Every pastor's fantasy is that people remember. (laughs) Genesis points forward to who? Yes. The accounts, the narrative in Genesis, listen to me, even the genealogies, they all point forward to Jesus. So, because I went into it in depth a few weeks ago, let me summarize the three main points of the genealogies found in chapter 5. Number one, we learn that men and women live for hundreds of years. And here's why that's significant. Adam, for example, lived to be 930 years old, which means he was alive in the same day that Noah's dad was alive. You realize that? Noah lived almost up until the time of the flood. So, one of the charges against the Bible is, how do we know that this is accurate, right? If like one generation passes it to another generation and another, won't things get lost in translation? Well, yeah, but when you have the original man telling his story for 900 years, it can be kept intact. Additionally, uh, we learn that from this genealogy, Adam and Eve, after Cain kills Abel, Adam and Eve, they have another son and his name is Seth. And this guy, he's a really good dude. In fact, his descendants are righteous. 
For example, we read about one, one man named Enoch. He, he passed from the temporal to the eternal without tasting death. It's like his walk was so close with God that God just took him from earth to heaven seamlessly. Why? Because of his righteousness. Also from the line of Seth is this other guy that's going to be very significant in the story. His name is Noah. Okay? So there's this contrast now between the wicked line of Cain and the righteous line of Seth. You see that play itself out in Genesis chapter 5. But most importantly, when the New Testament opens up, the author, one of the authors, Luke, in Luke chapter 3, he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus. And he reaches back into Genesis chapter 5, and he says, you know those two lines that descend from Adam and Eve, Cain and Seth? There's that wicked line, Cain, and that righteous line, Seth. Guess which one Jesus comes from? He comes from the line of Seth. So what I'm telling you is this is a nod to God who promised a forthcoming Messiah that would come from the righteous line. Jesus' genealogy matches that. Pay attention. Now, Luke goes on to reveal a lot more about Jesus, like, you know, like healing people and raising the dead and then that whole resurrection thing, kind of like the exclamation mark on the life of Jesus, but he begins with the genealogy reaching back to Genesis. Now, the other thing uh, we learn about this is that um, this is all a, a setup. It's all a setup answering the question, why this part of the narrative? Why tell us about Lamech and how evil he is? Why tell us about this wicked line of Cain? Why, why, why? Again, because God is about to do something uh, that um, it's rather dramatic. Um, we, we need to understand what would prompt God to take this kind of, of action. Uh, and, and so what, what, the way chapter 6 opens up, it's, it's kind of scary. By the way, this is the most debated text in all of Genesis. It includes three things. The demonization of culture, the shortening of man's life, and it also deals with, um, well, the gross glorification of violence on the earth. In essence, what the author's doing is he's saying, let me paint you a picture, the origins of pre-flood society and what it was that influenced God to make the decision that he did, all right? So the demonization of culture, the shortening of man's life, and the glorification of violence on the earth, all right? That's what we see in the first few chapters of 6. So let's read it um, and enjoy it together. Verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man, they were beautiful. These sons of God looked at these women, and they were stunning. They were incredibly attractive. And they took as their wives any that they chose. So this was displeasing to the Lord, in case you're wondering. Verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, so his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, then Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. 
These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, um, what is this about? Who are these sons of God? So this is where a lot of ink has been spilled. There are great minds on every side of this uh, equation, um, but I, th I, th I think I understand it pretty well based on the fact that there are specific New Testament passages, watch this now, that connect fallen angels or demons to the time of Noah. Specific passages that connect fallen angels to the time of Noah. And I'll, I'll show you, 1 Peter chapter 3. So Peter tells us that um, at some point around Jesus' um, death, his burial, and his crucifixion, Jesus launches a preaching campaign, all right? And Peter tells us a little bit about it. Verse 19, chapter 3, says, In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Why? Because they, these spirits, formerly did not obey. Well, when was this? Like, give us a time frame. He tells you. When God's patience waited Look at this, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So this word spirit, the Greek word is pneumata, and it's used in reference to spiritual beings. It seems that these spiritual beings rebelled against God at the time of the flood Jesus went and preached to these spirits who were in prison. It seems to me that these spirits then refer to fallen angels. Additionally, in 2 Peter chapter 2, we read this. For God did not spare angels when they sinned. So we know when people say, oh, I'm all about angels, I'm like, time out. What kind of angels? There's two kinds, right? There are those that rebelled against God. Those are fallen angels but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That sure sounds like, like a lot like prison that he mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, there's Noah mentioned again with, with these fallen angels, who was a herald of righteousness with seven others, that's his family, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under the punishment until the day of judgment. So again, Peter makes this connection between fallen angels and the time of Noah. Now, what about this specific phrase, the sons of God? There are places in, in the Bible where um, God refers to his family, you know, as sons and daughters. But this specific phrase is used in Job chapter 1, verse 6. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Clearly here... Sons of God refers to fallen angels. So uh, it seems to me what's being said is actually pretty straightforward. Um, these sons of God are angels who rebelled against God during the time of Noah. And they literally commandeered or took possession of men uh, for the purpose of going after these uh, women. Now, if you read the New Testament, you see over and over again, demons have this affinity to inhabit physical bodies. You see demons tormenting men and women. In fact, two of these crazy guys approach Jesus. They're demon-possessed, and they know exactly who's in front of them and what's about to happen, and they say, will you cast us into the pigs. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because they have this desire to inhabit physical bodies, even if it be pigs. Um, 
these demonized men end up marrying the daughters of other men. And let me just say that the powers of darkness love to pervert what God has declared to be holy and sacred. So one of their first acts of perversion is aimed straight at marriage and sex. Some believe that this was Satan's attempt at undermining the promise God made in Genesis chapter 2 at the fall, 2 and 3 at the fall, when you read about this offspring of a woman that will crush the serpent's head. So some believe that this is Satan's way of, of sort of bastardizing the human race in an attempt to usurp the promise God had made. Um, let me just say on a personal note, I studied in seminary, I studied under Dr. Neil Anderson, who specializes in satanic ritual abuse. And he allowed me for a period of about four or five months to sit in with him on many of his counseling sessions. And uh, it is undeniable. My eyes were so wide open to the reality of spiritual warfare, especially illicit, strict satanic spiritual uh, warfare. Um, it was not uncommon to counsel men who had opened themselves up in very specific ways to the powers of darkness. What are those ways? I personally saw two, two ways as consistent patterns or themes. Number one, drug use, and number two, illicit sex. So for example, we would be sitting across from a man who would talk about how he picked up a prostitute and he was being tor had sex with her and was being tormented by this woman's spirit. Highly successful men. This one dude rolled up in a Rolls Royce for his counseling session, right? I mean, like, he has, he has his sleeve monogrammed and he said, I'm losing everything. I'm being tormented. This woman's spirit won't leave me. And then he would go on to tell some crazy stories, like just crazy stories that wouldn't be appropriate for me to share in this context. Genesis chapters four, five, and six are painting a picture of what the world was like, and God observes it, and he says, my heart is broken. This was not my intention. The world literally has become demonized. As a, let me take another side note. Many of you know Satan Khan was here in Scottsdale last week, and I sort of tongue-in-cheek joked about it. But I went on their website to do a little investigating just to see if, if they had something on there that stated what they were for. And it was fascinating because they support two humanitarian causes. Number one, humanitarian causes. Number one, pro-choice, which is interesting. They would align, align themselves you know, with, with that team. And then uh, number two, it, well, they were committed to fighting against domestic abuse. And I thought, are you freaking kidding me right now? What kind of sick smoke screen is that? You know, I have sat across from teenagers who have been subjected to satanic ritual abuse in the, in, in the, in the most gut-wrenching ways. And these kids are undone. They are unwound. You're going to sit there and tell me that you stand against that when in the very name of your cause it happens? The language here is really interesting. All right, let me just dig a little deeper here. Um, 
it says that these demonized men took women. Isn't that interesting? This describes an animalistic form of sex. They took women. When you read the narrative of Adam and Eve, what's the language? Adam knew Eve. It's tender. It's intimate. It's, it's a description of sex being used to enhance the bond of marriage. These demonized men took women. Either way, details notwithstanding, these verses are in the narrative because it describes just how base and low the world had become. Demonized sexual relationships, it's super bad stuff. God takes notice. The consequences are God says, I'm not going to wrestle with man forever. His days will be 120 years, no more. And by the way, after you see the birth of this man, Aaron, that's basically it. Nobody lives beyond 120 years after that. Um, in addition, God says, I'm going to press the reset button. Now, before we get into that question, are there versions of this pre-flood demonization? Have they taken place throughout history? Or is it isolated to this moment in time? What do you think? If you look back through human history, are there examples of demonized cultures? I would say absolutely. I think of Rome under Nero or Caligula. I think of the demonization of the Third Reich. Let's press it a little bit further. What about in our own day? Is it possible that there is a demonization of our own culture. You say, why are you talking about this? The reason is because too many Christians are just flat out naive. That's why. You need to stop being so naive to the realities that surround you. Because, you know, look, the world wants to divide us in so many different ways, okay? The Bible divides everybody into one of two camps. You are either in the family of God or the family of Satan. You either ascribe to the spirit of God or the spirit of this world. Question, do we not see leaders all over the world, right, especially a handful right now, who are acting more in line with the spirit of the world or the spirit of God? Specifically, those that are acting in tyrannical ways. That is not the spirit of God, but that is the spirit of this world that brings oppression upon people. That is not of God. More so, when you see those in authority pressing in and advancing all that God stands against, that is not of the Spirit of God. That is of the Spirit of this world. Look, we have this verse that so few of us believe to be true. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our real struggle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities. There's a hierarchy here. They're extremely well organized against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this is God's evaluation of the world at that time. Verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, look at this, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil continuously. This is really strong language in the text. Every intention literally means everything to be formed. It was used to describe a potter's hands at the wheel taking shape and creating something. Everything that man created, he was creating for the purpose of using for evil. How can I create, how can I use this in a wicked way? Uh, it's, there's a level of depravity here. Lust, uh, it's relentless, um, and it's the norm. It's super depressing, dark uh, time for everyone. So this is what God thinks about it. The world is on this inevitable course, divine judgment, verse 6. Here's how God feels about it, and the Lord regretted. You know, if you regret something, it's like, oh, I'm sorry that I did that. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the, of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Notice that the primary emotion from God is not anger. That needs to be clear, clear here. The primary emotion from God with this reset is sadness because God had this beautiful intention for his creation and the pinnacle of his creation, men and women, male and female, above all, created in his image alone, blessing them, giving them everything that they would need for life, and man chooses to rebel, and it gets really, really bad, and the earth becomes a theater of violence and chaos, and people struggle with what God does next, but I have come to understand that the account of the flood actually shows us that God is incredibly merciful because what he's about to do is to restrain humanity's ever-increasing wickedness. Uh, humanity is headed into a permanent state of nonstop evil, and so God steps in and uses his mercy to bring an end to it. Notice carefully, too, that God doesn't take pleasure in this. The main emotion is one of sorrow. Humanity was supposed to flourish. And what was proven is that men and women are sinners in need of a savior. In Isaiah chapter 54, the prophet, when he thinks about the flood and God's perspective on it, this is what he says. He says, this is like the days of Noah to me as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. See, it's not like, this reminds me of the days of Noah when God was so angry. You know, actually, what we see there is God's mercy and his promise, and he's promising that that will never happen again. A flood will not destroy the earth. So just like in the Garden of Eden, we see God exercise this very, this is it's really great. It's this divine mercy. It's like he gives Adam and Eve an opportunity, right? Make it right. He gives Cain an opportunity to make it right. Now, he finds this one man, Noah, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why Noah? Well, we find out in the next verse, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah because Noah was a righteous man. What does righteous mean? He did right deeds, deeds that please God. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He wasn't perfect. He gets off the boat. We'll get there. Things get super freaky, really, really weird. We'll get there in a second. But how does this relate to you and me? How is it relevant to our own time? This story is more relevant than you know because Jesus actually speaks about it. By the way, that's also how we know the flood story is true. Jesus took it as truth. Uh, well, what does Jesus say about it? 
he uses it in the most sobering way possible to help you understand one guiding truth in your life. Okay? Matthew chapter 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What is he talking about, the Son of Man? Well, if you read through the New Testament, two primary titles for Jesus. Son of Man refers to his humanity. Son of God refers to his deity. So he's talking about himself. For as were the days of Noah, remember those days? So will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, people were going about their business. They were eating, they were drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Some of those marriages were really gnarly because we know they were demonized, a lot of demonization of the culture. Until the day. Drip. 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 Now, there's no indication in the text up until this point that rain even was a thing. There was another way that God supplied water for the earth. Realize that God never told Noah exactly what a flood was and how that was going to come to pass. He didn't get those details. He's just told, build an Build, build, an, build a really big boat. Trust me. Oh, and by the way, 120 years pass between the time that God says he's going to flood the earth and the first raindrop falls. And God didn't talk to Noah about the timing either. He was called just to trust. <sighs> Believe me, that will preach. That's next week, okay? Make sure you're here, right? Things are normal. Sun comes up, people going about their business. And all of a sudden, this wet stuff falls from the sky. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And he shuts the door. By the way, Jesus uses a lot of Genesis language when he talks about him. He refers to himself as the door. Right? This is Genesis language because when that door to the ark shuts, everybody that's inside is saved. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. They were unaware of the reality of God's promises and his ability to keep them. They were unaware that God is a truth teller and a promise keeper because for 120 years, Noah was chopping wood, and building a boat, and at night, he's going out, and he's preaching. He's preaching. He's telling people, let me tell you why you all think I'm out of my mind. My God has spoken to me. This is what he said his coming. 120 years he's in this business, man. Nobody pays attention to him. They were unaware that God kept his promises and swept them all away. And then Jesus adds this. Here's the punchline. My return is going to be just like that. How many times in the New Testament does Jesus give a story, and the point of the story is, be ready. Question, how do you ready yourself? Number one, you need to know Jesus. Walking in obedience, we see moving forward, God looking for those who are righteous and using them in his own way for his own purposes to bring salvation even to other people. That's what happened with Noah, 
Here's another application point for you. The powers of darkness always promise heaven and always deliver to you hell. They always promise heaven, but they deliver to you hell. Think about it, it's going, you know, Adam and Eve. Here's the promise, you will be like God. The result, banished from the garden. The promise to Cain, take master of your jealousy and your domain and use it to satisfy what's going on inside you. The consequence is that Cain is banished from the land. And it's not this human nature because what we're gonna see is after, after the flood, the earth is repopulated, and you know what happens next? Humans get together and they build this massive tower, either as a form of worshiping false gods or as a way of elevating themselves and becoming God-like. This is the story of humanity. The problem is not with God. The problem is with the heart of man. It's amazing that God continues to pursue. The Bible says that God is patient and desires for none to perish. That's God's desired will. But this story also tells us that God's patience will come to an end. Uh, and the return of Jesus marks the end of God's patience. What comes next is judgment. And Jesus says, you know why the flood story is there for you? To remind you that I am coming back. And people will be caught unaware. Noah's your man. In Hebrews chapter 11, says that Noah worked, what? By faith, by faith. When he looked like an absolute idiot to everyone in the culture until it started to rain. And then everybody went, he was right. <laughs> the culture, it makes you look like an idiot. There's gonna come a day when you will be made right. Question. Are you prepared for that day? I'm gonna give you the opportunity to now. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. Why? Just to free you from any possible distraction. I cannot let you leave here without giving you this moment. People ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? That is the question, great question. The answer is very straightforward. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's how serious God takes it, and you want that because that means that God is just. He doesn't turn a blind eye to all the wrongs that people do. We just don't want justice coming to us. What we want is mercy. On the cross, the justice of God and the mercy of God come together, and that equals forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus had to die. He died in your place. For those who have embraced what Jesus has done, they've automatically passed from death to life. Have you done that? If not, this will be the most important moment of your life on this planet to make that decision, to really uh, embrace what you, you already probably already sense and know that goes on within uh, your own heart and to know the deep love that God has for you, that he would provide you a way out. In essence, Jesus is your ticket on the ark. There is no other way. If there was, it would have been answered. Jesus was in the garden and he prayed it. Any other way? Can people just be good enough to get there? 
Can people just be good enough to get to heaven on their own? No, you can't be good enough. If that's the desire of your heart, you simply tell God, that's what I need, and that's what I want. Some of you may be here. You haven't been in church in a long time. You are not here by accident. The Spirit of God is tugging at your heart. What's being said is be ready. Be ready. So, Father, as we leave this place, we pray with such incredible confidence, knowing that you do keep your promises and that, God, in your divine mercy and grace and love, you have provided us a way of escape through Jesus. It's, it's too good to be true, but it is. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd speak to every heart in the room, no matter where, where that heart is at. I pray that we would leave this place with a better understanding of the truth of your scripture, but, but how we can act on it. Lord, the best way to, to be ready, number one, to know you, but then to live the life of Jesus, loving our neighbor, as ourselves, more so as you have loved us. To love God and to love others. That's what it's about. Father, speak to us. Also that the name of Jesus can be lifted up and be made famous. Jesus is the ultimate influencer, the original influencer, the best kind, because he does have our best interest in mind. To make him famous, Lord, that's what we want. Because he deserves it alone. And it's in his name that we pray. And God's people said, amen. Amen.